Friends, we are indeed in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 13 as we continue our series. And we're going to do this whole section that starts in verse 13, but I'm not going to read everything. But I do want to point out just a few things as we enter into this text and kind of understand what's happening. We knew that from a couple of weeks ago before Christmas, you've got Paul and Barnabas. They're in Antioch in Syria, and they're sent out to do mission work through Cyprus, and they see somebody come to faith, Sergius Paulus, and we pick them up in verse 13, that they enter kind of the Mediterranean world, and it says Paul and his companions in verse 13, which is beautiful because Paul's ministry is like a snowball. Wherever he goes, he just picks up more and more people. It was just him and Barnabas. Now it's Paul and his companions. And verses 13 and 14 says kind of where they traveled. And since we don't know our ancient Near East geography as we ought, we wouldn't readily catch that when they go city to city, they actually land at a a city that's also called Antioch, not Syrian Antioch, but Pisidian Antioch. And that was kind of out of the way for them. That wasn't a natural way. That wasn't a big city for them to travel to. It kind of like be saying that we went from Augusta to Columbia to Elgin to Charleston. And you're wondering, how did Elgin get in there? When I heard Columbia, I thought we were talking about bastions of cultural refinement. What are you guys doing going to Elgin? Um, And we don't know exactly why they went out of their way to go to this city, Antioch in Pisidia, but some suspect, and there's a little bit of evidence for it, that Sergius Paulus, their one convert, had family there. And as they were going through Galatia, Sergius said to them, would you please, please go out of your way and see my family and preach the gospel to them? And so they go. And they go to the city, and then in verse 16, they begin to preach the gospel. Paul preaches. He preaches a thousand years of Old Testament history, Exodus through King David, all the way to highlight the Messiah, beginning in verse 32. Acts 13, 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not seek corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Skip ahead to verse 48 and the response of the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you fill us with this kind of joy to glory in the word, the good news, the gospel, the word become flesh to set us free from our sins and to justify us in your sight. I pray that you would sink that truth deep within us. Lord, I pray for those of us here who don't know you, don't worship you, aren't sure where we are spiritually, 
that you would give us listening ears to hear what you say the good news is. Will you speak to us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, that was a lot of material and that was a big sermon that Paul preached. And so I want to pull you to his thesis, kind of the climax of what he's preaching in verses 38 and 39. Look there with me. When Paul says to them, this is the good news, through this man, of course, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. He's using that word free and freedomed. You could take that English word and you could also translate from the Greek word justified. You are justified. You have received justification. Now justification is a big, meaty, theological word. We don't use it often, but what it basically means is a declaration of not guilty. If you stand before holy God as a sinner and you are guilty in his sight, but you receive the gospel, you throw yourself on Jesus and he takes your sin from you and gives you his righteousness, then God the judge in your justification will declare you are not guilty. Justification is now a guiltless pronouncement from sin in God and it's the good news. So if justification is guiltlessness from sin, it begs the question, what is sin? And that's such a simple question. We all kind of nod and say, yeah, yeah, we basically got it. But pause for a minute. What, what do we mean by sin? Because the Bible makes a big deal about sin. And if we're not honest or we don't understand what sin is, then a lot of scripture is not going to make sense to us. I just started reading the gospel of Matthew this new year and seeing the direct connection about every single chapter between Jesus and sin. It's everywhere. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When John the Baptist prepared the way preaching, people came out confessing their sins. Jesus preached, repent of sin for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. The Bible thinks that sin is a really big deal. So what is it? How how would we define it? I literally want to hear from you this morning, like two or three of you, How would you define sin? Give me a definition for sin that we can work with. Disobedience towards God. Disobedience towards God. Beautifully said. What else would someone say? Anything that separates us from God. God. This idea of a relationship with God as God is the standard, us being separate from that. John says in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, disobedience. God has a standard. I haven't lived that standard. I've resisted that. Augustine, the ancient early church father, said it's any thought, word, or deed against the eternal law. God has a law unto himself. Like God has made us to be perfect, happy, soul-fulfilling fellowship with him. And sin is anything that resists that, spits in his face, and runs in the opposite direction. That's sin, and as horrendous as that is, Scripture also says all have sinned and fall short of the glorious glory of God and this glorious life in God. The Bible is making this audacious claim 
that every single person in this room occupying a seat right now is a big, fat, ugly, gnarly sinner. That's what the Bible says. That is incredibly bad news, and we don't like that news. We don't want to hear this talk about sin. We don't want to hear talk about falling short of the glory of God and not measuring up to who he is. We don't like the idea that I'm living my life on my terms and you're saying that there is a God who is wholly other than me who is somehow holding me accountable for what I say and I think and I do and we resist that. And so since creation, humanity has devised two ways to justify ourselves before God That is not God's justification for us. I want you to hear these two and we're going to unpack them as we go. And I want you to say, which one of these do I lean towards in my attempt to justify myself, to make myself look right before God? Which of these two do I lean towards? Number one, we justify ourselves by thinking too highly of our righteousness. I think too highly of my goodness, my holiness. Or number two, we justify ourselves by thinking too little of God's righteousness. I'm thinking too highly of mine. I'm thinking too little of God's. At the risk of a caricature, you could almost say that the first was a Jewish problem and the second was a Gentile problem. The Jewish problem was to overinflate my righteousness and the Gentile problem was to bring God's righteousness now down and it's not quite what we say it is. And so Paul in this city is preaching to Jew and Gentile and he's saying run from those fake self-justifications and instead come find this the gospel which is God's true justification. So let's think about these two fake false self-justifications. The first one is this. We justify ourselves by thinking too highly of our righteousness. You're telling me that God is a holy God, that he dwells in inexpressible light, and you're saying that I'm down here as a lowly sinner. One of the ways to bridge that terrifying gap between God and I is to bring myself up in my estimation. Well, surely I'm not the worst sinner that there can be. Surely I'm not as sinful as you make me out to be. Surely I've done some good things in my life. If I can inflate my own view of myself, I'm closer to God than you say that I am. If you were to walk out on the street or on campus and you were to stop somebody and ask them the old school evangelistic question, if you were to die today and you were to face God in judgment and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? This kind of self-justification says, because I'm a decent person. I mean, I'm not as bad as the worst person. I'm not as good as the best person. I'm a decent person. I don't litter. I help old ladies cross the street. I mean, I haven't done anything egregious. That is self-justification. We heard that in the scripture reading from Luke chapter 10. It was interesting that the lawyer comes to Jesus and he says to him in Luke 10, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think? And the lawyer says, I think you should love God and love other people perfectly. And Jesus says, awesome, go and do that and you'll have it. And I think the lawyer senses like Jesus' suspicion or a little hint of sarcasm. And so the text says, fascinatingly, but the lawyer desiring to justify himself asks, 
who is my neighbor? You hear what he's doing? I'm trying to cover my bases. Like, I think I got this, right? I think I love God. I think I love other people. But who is my neighbor? Who's included in this? Who, who do I need to care for so that I have done enough so that I can be justified in your sight? That's why he's asking the question. He's trying to bring himself up to God. Well, Paul's hearers in this city would have thought what the lawyer thought. They would have thought that a person is saved, of course, by the grace of God, but also by works of the law, by doing, by obeying, by accomplishing. That's why Paul is so adamant to preach. It is Jesus alone who justifies from everything, he says this to the audience, of which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. You're still holding on to that, and that's not going to work for you. It is only Christ. This is a different message. It's not God's grace plus. It is only solely God's grace in Christ that justifies. But that's hard to grasp and it's hard to stick with because we've had so much experience justifying ourselves and so Paul needs to come back to this again and again. The city that he's in is in the region of Galatia. So he goes around and he preaches here at Antioch and a couple other cities and then he leaves and then he immediately writes a letter to this whole region, to all these churches that are here, the letter to the Galatians. And the theme of the letter is, knock it off. Stop adding anything to the grace of God. Stop adding works of the law to God's love for you in Christ. Don't do it. This is what he writes in Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Listen to how repetitive he is. He says to fellow Jews, for we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. No offense to the Gentiles in the room. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, nobody will be justified. Nobody. Nobody will stand before God and say, I've been a decent person. I did X, I did Y, I did Z. There is no justification in now, a lot of us know that in theory. Like if you had a pop quiz when you left here and said, how are you justified? Is it A, Jesus, or is it B, Jesus plus something else? I'm hoping 90% of us would say A, Jesus only. And yet, self-justification, elevating my righteousness creeps into absolutely everything I do. Think about this. If I want to elevate my righteousness, one of the things I have to do is hide my sin. I got to suppress my sin. I can't be honest about my sin. When's the last time I took a long, hard look at sinful patterns in my life and how I repeat the same thing again and again? I don't want to look at that. I don't want to think about that. A person who makes little of sin is that person that can't be confronted about anything. You know those people you try to like softly, humbly, prayerfully rebuke them about something and they just like freak out on you and they can't respond to that and you can't say anything to them because they don't want to let on that they're a sinner and so they can't possibly be guilty of what you're saying. Or when you go to point the log out in their eye, they're eager to point the speck out in your eye. 
I do this all the time with my wife. She says, babe, I want to talk to you about something. And it's like, good, I want to talk to you about something. She says, no, I'm going first. This is what I want to talk about. Because I don't want to be exposed as a sinner, and that's my knee-jerk reaction. This kind of person dwells in self-pity where the story is always about themselves. This person is not known by other people. There's a lot of people in their life. There's a lot of people that know what sports team they root for. Not a single person in their life knows at their core what they struggle with and what sin is strangling them to death. That's a person that makes little of sin because they have to to be justified. Or they elevate the good things about themselves. They're the person that airs their righteousness before others to be seen by them because I want you to know that I'm a good person. And when I give to the poor and when I serve in this place and when I do a good deed, I have a way to drop a line to you to pray for it or to celebrate it because I want you to hear my righteousness. Why? Because I'm working so hard to hide sin and elevate my ministry so that I appear closer to God than I actually am. And we don't realize it, but when we're doing that, when we can't be known as a sinner, when we air out our righteousness and we seek to elevate ourselves to God and bring ourselves closer to him, what happens to the person of Jesus? But he comes, becomes smaller and smaller and smaller because we don't need him. I'm not a 500 denarii debtor. I'm a 50 denarii debtor. I needed 20 bucks to get to heaven and not the grace of Jesus. That's one means of self-justification. It's to elevate myself. It's to have a high esteem of my own righteousness. The second way we justify ourselves is if we can't get up to God, we simply bring God down to us. We make little of God's righteousness. That will close the gap between us if he just becomes a deity that is like us and is cool with us. So if I went out on the street or I went to campus and I asked that old school question, Die today, stand before God. Why should he let you into heaven? This kind of justification would say, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't a loving God accept me just as I am? Do you see that subtle shift? If God loses anything about his holiness and his justice and all that remains is his love and his tolerance, I can always justify myself before God because there's no standard in him to say that I'm not justified. Now that's dense, so let me illustrate. I've got a friend who, a couple of weeks ago, he came down with a mysterious sickness, okay? He was running a fever, and his body was achy, and he had like this foggy brain and couldn't remember things, and he was losing his sense of taste, and he showed up at work, and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I haven't tested positive for COVID. And I said, well, that's crazy. When did you take a test? And he said, I didn't. <laughs> and I said, man, that's not how this works. You can't say you haven't tested positive for COVID when you haven't tested for COVID. That's not how this works. You can say, I haven't taken a test, but you can't say, I haven't tested positive. That's the man on the street who says, I haven't tested positive for sin. 
Of course you haven't tested it positive for sin because you have not yet held yourself against the pure, spotless, glorious, majestic king of heaven and earth. If our God is all likability and tolerance and acceptance, he sounds like an HR department and not the God who thunders in scripture. And when we hold ourselves against a soft, spineless, tepid vapor, we walk away justified every time in our minds and as far from God as we possibly could be. Friend, that is a broad road that seeks to bring God down and his righteousness down to justify myself and it does not end well. How do we do this in our lives? How do we bring God and our estimation down so that we're comfortable with him? Well, I think one of the ways we do that is simply to ignore the reality of who he is. I tell you that God is a bright, burning star in heaven and this Bible is a telescope and something amazing happens. You walk away from this book and being transformed by this book and God appears as a little prick of light in the sky that you can cover up with your pinky finger and not even think about. But when you step up to this book day in and day out and it unfurls before you the majestic God that is here and present, then our hearts can't help but say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. This is a survival tactic. Self-justification is a survival tactic. It's interesting that Paul did it, and then Paul's audience did it, and now we do it today, because if we can make much of ourselves and our righteousness, and if we can bring God down in our estimation of him, then that helps us cope with this unnerving reality that my life is worse than I'm making it out to be and God is holier than I'm admitting and there is this great chasm between myself and God. But all that work comes at a great cost. It comes at a great cost to elevate my righteousness because I have to wear a mask and pretend in front of all of you that I'm not as grave a sinner as I really am. It's exhausting to pretend that I'm more righteous than I actually am. Remember when the COVID mandate came out about wearing masks to church and everybody complained about it and then the meme went around, why are you complaining about wearing a mask to church when you've always worn a mask to church? We do that. We still have it on today to put our most righteous foot forward and it exhausts us. It's exhausting to try to bring God down in his holiness and make him like us. Martin Luther said in his testimony that whenever he read about the holiness and the righteousness of God, he hated God for it. Why? Because it was holy other and he saw himself for what he was. Into that misery, into that exhaustion, Paul announces verse 32, I bring you good news. Friend, there is 
good news. There is a justification that comes apart from us and it comes in Jesus. I can actually, even as a born again believer, take off this mask of my righteousness, let other people into my life and admit what kind of sinner I really am. I can actually in this life begin to esteem God for who he is and his holiness because the goal is not to bring the gap closer between myself and God by upping my righteousness and lowering his, I can now with this good news acknowledge just what a sinner I truly am in all my parts and just how majestic and holy God is because into that chasm steps the person of Jesus himself who will take my sin and all its depravity and even the places I'm not really ready to admit right now and he'll place it on himself and he'll take that pure spotless righteousness of Jesus and place it on me and he brings God to me, Emmanuel, God with us and we are joined together. Listen to the way the Gentiles respond when they grasp for the first time there is a bridge between the chasm of God and I. Number one, verse 48, they party. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. He is, who is forgiven much loves much. Number two, they believe. 40, verse 48b, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, they throw themselves on Jesus, they discard self-justification. And number three, verse 49, they share it. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. If I hear this good news, how could I not give it to another? Praise God, let's pray. Lord, you are just and you are the justifier of the unjust. I pray that we would stop playing games with you and we would welcome your spirit to expose even the darkest places of our hearts and the sin that dwells there and that he would open our eyes to the majesty of who you are so that this good news becomes great and precious news indeed that Jesus has come to save sinners. Surprise us in the way you do that even this week, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.